all the questions you guys put are putting to me are academic. Um, I've been asked how much reading you should do weekly. I can't tell you. Um, I'm hoping that the, the way I move forward will gauge you, help you gauge yourself. Um, in a play, a Shakespeare-linked play, Mike Words in Venice, and uh, Othello, I, we're gonna, I'm going to plan to spend about three weeks on each. So we will, we will spend tonight on Merchant, and next week we should finish it. Um, maybe at the end of next week I'll say some introductory things about Othello, but, but uh, for sure tonight and next week. And then three weeks on Othello, roughly, and, and then we're going to start. When we get to those works, I'm going to encourage everybody to, to try to, to read about the same Iliad as 24 books. Eight books a week. That may sound like a lot. Here's my concern. Um, this is not an academic class, so you're not under, I, I'm not under pressure to get six books done in a semester. Um, my concern is that I not drag something out. So I'm going to try to keep us on it keep everybody's interest. Uh, it, it may make for difficulties reading, but I, I think it's a reasonable amount of time, say, when you start dealing to do roughly eight books a week. Same with the Odyssey and the Aeneid. Those are longer books they are going to ask more of you. When, when we finish dealing the Odyssey and the Aeneid, we'll do Boethius. It's a short word. We'll spend a couple of weeks on that. And then the Divine Comedy. When we do the Divine Comedy, time is going to stretch out. That's that's a book too much is going on in the Canadian. Um, and there's too much that's important. So I would be surprised if we didn't take three or four weeks on each of the candles, the Inferno, the Purgatory, the Paradiso. So we'll give more time to that than the ancient epics. Um, and after Dante, we'll come back to Shakespeare. My, my memory's right here. We'll do Hamlet something else and then we'll be in the modern world if you're still here. <laughs> um, but that's roughly, and what was the other question? Um, I'm not sure, but get your pencils out because I'm giving you a quiz on the first three chapters, first three acts of merchandise. <laughs> Once a teacher. Um, I think that's, oh, oh, I know. I'm going to uh, pass on that to 
name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you. Um, we didn't create ourselves. Um, we're here because um, you created this freely. Extraordinary thing. And ironically, it's going to speak to our place tonight um, about the importance of loving freely. Strengthen us in our efforts to do that. Um, you've asked us to follow you, to love as you do, to give ourselves completely. It's a hard thing to do. Um, strengthen us in our efforts to learn from these, these um, great poets. Um, for all of us, we're here to learn. Um, you are our teacher. Um, I was much a learner. I hope more as a teacher. Um, but we're all here to learn. And strengthen us in our efforts, particularly. Oh, 
was doing this going back to a time when she was four and helping us to relive this experience. And we come at a point realizing there was so much more going on than most of us would see. And the father's a scholar. Well, that means so. Anyway, I think that, but it's a touching poem. And remember, I'm just going to read it and then I'm going to go to Hopkins. Remember that in the poem, everything speaks. The logos, the notion of the logos, permeates this poem. Everything in this world speaks. Do we give things their names? Do we hear themselves? Do we even realize that each thing is a thing speaking itself, a tree, a bird, whatever it is? Everything in this poem speaks. Okay? How attentive are we to those sorts of things? Sometimes what we're going to see in the Virgin of Venice is that people become so preoccupied in their world that they don't see these things. And that's one of the reasons we're together, I believe. So I'm going to read Supernatural Love, and then I'm going to read two poems by Gerard Manley Hopkins. And be aware of how things in the ordinary things in the world are speaking. Um, and they're this sorts of things to which most of us are usually deaf. We don't hear them. Okay. The poet is giving them. The poet is revealing their voices to us. Okay? I just had eye surgery and I'm still trying to find my way with the glasses. Okay. Supernatural love. My father at the dictionary stand touches the page to fully understand that the answer tilting in his hand is slowly scanning a blurry, glistening circle he suspends above the word carnation. Then he bends so near his eyes are magnified and blurred, one finger, one finger on a miniature word, as if he touched a single key and heard a distant, plucked, infinitesimal strain, the obligation due to everything that's smaller than the universe. Those words are coming off the page. I bring my sewing needle close enough that I can watch my father through the needle's eye as through a lens ground for a butterfly who peers down flower hallways towards a room shadowed and phantom as the studies gloom where as a scholar bends above a tomb to read what's buried there. He bends to pour over the Latin blossom. Time for, I better stop sorry, but I know there's some newcomers tonight because um, I don't want to go through this after a poem. Remember that everything going on in the poem um, is an allusion to the Bible, to, to events. Um, she's, she's um, the sample that she's stitching is beloved. Paul, we, we hear that word introducing almost all of Paul's letters of people, right? Beloved. Um, the, the, the French for carnation, clue, means nails. Nails. She prints herself with a needle. Okay? So there's the connection with the nails. Um, the blood speaks, it oozes, the string speaks. Um, the tomb, the hallways like a tomb. The father has no clue what's going on with his daughter. All he knows is this word. He intellectualizes everything. Um, she's asking, she's four. She has no clue what the word means. She's just taking by. He doesn't understand the, the, what the word means or why she's so fascinated, but there's that carnatio. Incarnation, in Christ, in flesh, yeah, in flesh, incarnate. He doesn't understand it. So the whole poem is, is speaking to these mysteries that are embedded in our life daily that we often miss. So you can go through the poem, just pay attention to those words, tomb, needle, beloved.
love it. And then finally, I don't think I'm going to hold it together again. <laughs> and then, Daddy, Daddy. And she grips it four years old. I'm four. I spill my pins and needles on the floor trying to stitch Beloved. That's my ex. My dangerous right needle's point connects myself illiterate to this perfect text I cannot read. My father puzzles why it is my habit to identify carnations as Christ's flowers. No, I knowing I can give no explanation, but because. Word roots blossom in speechless messages the way the thread behind my center does, where following each X, I awkward move my needle through the word whose root is love. He reads, a big variety of clove, Anazio, the Latin meaning, flesh. As if the bud's essential oil brush, Christ's fragrance through the room, the iron fresh odor carnations have, floats up to me, a drifted, secret, bitter ecstasy. The stems squeak in my scissors, child. It's me. He turns the page to clove and reads and aloud, the clove spice dry from a flower bud, and twice as if he hasn't understood, he reads from the French for clue, meaning a nail. He gazes motionless, meaning a nail, the incarnation blossoms, fresh of nail. I twist my threads like stems into a knot and smooth beloved. But my needle caught within the threads, my blood so dear to mine. The needle strikes my finger to the bone and I lift my hand. It is myself I've sewn. The flesh laid bare, the threads of blood, my own. I lift my hand in startled agony. I his name, Daddy, Daddy. My father's hand touches the injury as lightly as it touched the page before, where the carnations bloom from roots that bore the flowers I called Christ when I was four. I think one of the things that touches me, I think I just realized, maybe, child, it's me. Um, the blood so dearly brought. Christ is speaking and everything that's happening. The thread of blood. Christ is speaking. Who hears that? Is there, is, there, is there anything going on in our world where Christ isn't speaking to us? Not, if, not according to our faith. I mean, he made us. He's, you know, I think what touches me about it, this is a little four-year-old. She has she has no clue how vulnerable is. Even though she doesn't know it, her God is there. Goes my focus. <laughs> Look at dry man mountains. Let's read that. I'm just going to make brief comments on this to, so we can get on the But my reason for doing this is obviously, as you can tell, is because we're here to see if we can find Christ where ordinarily we don't see him. It's the point and purpose of our class, to, to, to learn to see what these poets help us see about our faith, hopefully to strengthen it and to open our eyes and ears. So, George Manny Hopkins was a Catholic um, priest. Um, he, he was um, an Anglican um, student in the English universities and became involved in the Tractarian movement in the 19th century. The Protestant Church of England was in crisis, and lots of the Protestant divines gathered to offer these tracts um, on reforms because they thought that the Protestant Church had become too lax, it was too too liberal, 
Does that sound familiar? Too liberal. Um, and the irony is that as they became involved in, in writing these tracts and addressing this public, um, the more they looked into church history, the more they realized the problem wasn't the Protestant church, the, the way they were living it. The problem was Protestantism itself, that it had broken off from the church, and historically they discovered why, to, to a man, all of them saw that the great problem, the central problem, was authority, that it had fractured the church and split it. The ramifications of that played out in the way the church was living. So lots of them converted. George, I mean, uh, um, John Henry Newman, it's probably the most famous name. Um, he, he became, I think, the great leader, and, and he inspired Hopkins, who came some years after him. Um, Hopkins converted from Anglicanism to the Catholic Church. It caused a, a horrible rift in his family. Um, the, the exchanges between him and his father were painful. They're painful to read. And the father thought he betrayed the faith. You can imagine that was his faith. Um, and he became a Jesuit. And if you know anything about church history, you know how much they English hated the Jesuits. Um, they they were the, the strictures against the, the Jesuits were greater than they were against the other orders. Father was or when Hopkins was ordained a priest, became a father, um, the, the ceremony had to be held in secret. It, it couldn't be held publicly. Uh, so he entered orders, and then he underwent a, a great crisis. This is one of the greatest poets in the English language. Some of the innovations he made forever changed the English. He, he really carried the tradition forward in amazing ways. He went through a crisis in which he believed that he couldn't want to be priest that he wanted to be without burning his poems. Oh, imagine. If any of you enjoyed his poems, you should pick up a collection of chocolate and Hopkins works for people. Um, I can't tell you how it's touched my life. I can't imagine my life without it. It's such an extraordinary poem. This is his poem called Wind Hover. Okay? Now, just a note. Remember, Fogger's <laughs> Hopkins was out walking. This is a, what's called an Italian sonnet. It's got an octave, eight lines, and a sestet, six lines. Generally speaking, traditionally, the octave presents an actual experience, something that actually happened. And the, the sestet reflects back on it. Now that's important because it, it shows that we're not animals. We experience the world through our senses just the way an animal does. But we're different because we can reflect on those experiences. Something can happen to us and we can find a meaning in it. So the very nature of the sonnet imitates consciousness. Is that clear? Octave, the experience, set to He's looking back on it and wondering what it meant. And then he's going to see something. Okay? Now remember, the wind number is a bird that flies through the sky. He was out in the morning, early morning hours. He sees this wind number. It's an actual experience. And then suddenly the wind number spreads his wings and for a moment it's like he stops. Yeah? It's like he mastered the wind at a moment. The whole wind. Because he's going to fall. Right? For a moment he's suspended in his flight. And it's as if just for a split second he masters the air. And then collapses. Okay? 
In Kingfisher's Catch Fire, he's describing each thing as having a self. Kingfisher, a dragonfly, stones going down a well, um, a bell, a bell that has a tongue. He's playing on the word tongue because you know each bell has a tongue. And he's dealing with the fact, he's rendering the fact that all things speak. So we've got the wind hover and Kingfisher's Catch Fire. Okay, Jeremiah and Hopkins. I come this morning, morning's minion, kingdom of daylight's Dauphin. Dauphin's the prince here. He, he's the heir of the daylight and the morning sun. This bird in his glory belongs to the sunlight. The Dauphin is the inheritor of the kingdom. It's like an image of Christ. I come this morning, morning's minion, kingdom of daylight's Dauphin. Dappled on drawn falcon, he's riding the rolling level underneath him, steady air. Can you hear the automatopoeia? It just sweeps. And striding high there, how he run upon the rain of a wimpling wing in his ecstasy. Then off on forth on swing as a skate's heel sweeps smooth on a bow bend. The hurl and gliding rebuffed the big wind. My heart in hiding stirred for a bird, the achieve of the mastery of the thing. Brute beauty and valor and act of air pride plume here, buckle. And the fire that breaks from me then, a billion times a little lovelier, more dangerous, oh my chevalier. No wonder of it. Sheer plod makes cloud and cilium shine, and blue bleak embers, ah my dear, fall, call themselves, and gash gold Okay, watch the line. Brute beauty and valor, and watch it out. It rushes forward and it stops. Brute beauty and valor and act, oh air pride from here. Buckle, stop. Okay? The word buckle, remember, means two things. It means combining, you buckle all those things together, but it also means collapsing. So, right at the moment of that bird's mastery, just at that moment when he achieves mastery, he buckles. Once again, it's an image of the um, crucifixion. It's Christ, God, going in all of his glory to a cross and taking all that mastery and allowing it to be killed, the buckle. So he's seen in the bird, and what happens with that bird, once again, an image of his Lord. And he says, thinking about this moment, when he sees the wind of master, the, the beauty of it, the mastery of it, and then the buckling, um, he sees on and reflects on it, and he says, no wonder, there's no wonder in this, Sheer plod makes plow down and shine. It's an image of a far farmer. If you know farmers, when they work their earth, it starts out very gummy and clay, yeah? But the more they work their earth, what happens to that earth? It begins to shine. It's effulgent. The light comes out of it. it, it um, not fluorescent, but you know that it becomes softer and almost luminous. The light comes out of it. So he said, there's no wonder in this. Every farmer does the same, number one. And then, no wonder, a sheer plot makes plow down so you shine, and blue bleak embers upon my dear fall, call themselves in the cash flow. Just when the fire starts to go out, we've all seen it. There's that moment when the rage is over, and the fire um, comes to a kind of ember, where this beautiful vermilion light is emitted in fire. So after all the heat and flash, 
in that moment when it's crushing and going out, there's this beautiful vermilion color, this light. So he's showing us Christ is everywhere. He's there in the bird, he's there in the farmer, he's there in the fire going out. Where is he not? He's the Word. What did he make? What's your name? Ginger. Ginger? Yeah. You're right. Kingfisher sketch fire. <laughs> Does Kingfisher sketch fire? Dragonflies are on flame. Does tumble over, so these are rocks going up. Does tumble over rim and round. Notice that you all know what Anamanapoe is, yeah? Anamanapoe yeah. means he's imitating the rhythm, the sounds of things. So he's trying to make those things as alive to us as they are to him. Because the whole, remember, he said that the whole point of poetry is to help us recover what we lost in the garden, that oneness with things and with each other. He's trying to recover that voice we lost, that oneness with all things in nature. Steam fishers catch fire, dragonflies are on flame. As tumble over rim and rounding wells, stones ring, like each tug string tells, each hung bell's bow swung, finds tongue to fling out by its feet. Each mortal thing does one thing in the same, deals out that being, indoors each one dwells, sounds, goes itself. Myself it speaks and spells, crying, what I do is me, for that I came. I say more, the just man justices, keeps grace, but keeps all his goings graces. Acts in God's eye, what in God's eye he is, Christ. Christ plays in ten thousand places, lovely in limbs and in eyes not his, to the Father and through the features of men's faces. I love the word dwells, indoors each one dwells. It's important to remember, I think we lose sight of it in our we lost sight of it in our idea and our faith. The ultimate source for every one of us, we were made in God's image, yeah, we were made in God's image, is to indwell with each other. For each one of us to hold on to our distinct self, God made each one of us distinctly. But we won't fulfill that self until we indwell with each other. Why? Because the source of our creation, or the Trinity, the three persons of the Trinity, who perfectly indwell with each other. Is our God an isolated God? Absolutely not. He's Trinitarian. The very nature of God is to indwell, to be one with so Hopkins is showing um, all the, the, you know, the kingfisher, the dragonfly, the, the, the stones going down the well, um, that there's this being in things, indwelling, each thing has its own self. Remember, I, I used the word, St. Thomas used the word suppositum, that each thing is a, has, each thing is a subject in its own right. Each tree is itself. We tend to objectify it. We objectify things in nature, we objectify each other. Like, like, like the push that I'm getting here is that the poets are helping to recover this sense that we have this view, this, we're helped to return to that state where we indwell with each other. Um, so, supernatural love is where I'm at. Any questions before we start on Shakespeare? Before we get serious? Thank you.
Oh, sorry, what's your name?
questions. Um, we don't read very well, um, and I want to just go back to the gospel reading this weekend, um, just as an example, because it relates so directly to what we're doing tonight. You know, in reading this last weekend, it was Christ talking, giving a parable about um, the shepherd who went looking for the one lost sheep. He, he turned away from the 99 and didn't need help to find. And then he, he, he follows that up with the parable of the woman who's looking for the lost coin. And his words, um, should have this sermon. That was Sunday, right? After, this is interesting, after he gives the second parable of the woman, he says, when she does find it, she calls together friends, they all celebrate, rejoice with me because I found the coin that I lost. In just the same way, I tell you, there will be rejoicing, there will be rejoicing among the angels of God over one sinner who repents. But so the crux of all the readings was repentance, because you know, when he goes on to do the third parable, it's of the prodigal son who goes off and wastes his, and he repents, he comes back. So the condition for being received by his father is repentance. That's underscored, okay? But what's, in, what's interesting for me in the way that it relates here is it's about reading. Because there's two very different ways of reading the world in that parable. There are two sons. This is my reading of it, so... Trust me for a minute. You may want to raise questions, but give, give me a minute. Anyway, I believe that what's at issue here is the conflict between the first covenant and the last. Between the law and the law and mercy of Christ. The older son belongs to, he's, he's the first covenant. He, he's, the, he's the father's first child. He, he believes that by following the law, he's done everything right. Right? He says, I've done the law, I've done this. Why are you giving this party for this guy who's wasted? My brother who's wasted it all. The brother's wasted it all, and he comes back and repents it. He's, so you've got in this two readings. The first covenant, the Old Testament, and the new. The sinner that Christ came to save. He reaches the point where he realizes what an idiot he's been and says, I want to go back on And enough of this pig And he goes back to the Father and embraces him. And he wants to celebrate. Because the celebration is when one soul repents. So. But the reason I wanted to mention that tonight is because at the, at the root of those parables is this problem with reading. And we don't even know at the end of the parable whether the older son comes in for the celebration. The father says, we should celebrate, it's left. Um, he says, we should, we ought, we ought to be merry and celebrate. And it's, oh, do, does the older son go in? Or is he still saying, he doesn't repent. His attitude is, I don't need, I don't need forgiveness, I've done nothing wrong. I followed the law, I've done everything I'm supposed to do. That's the Old Testament reading. And it's left that way. So you've got two very different ways of relating to the Father that's based on reading in Old Testament and New Testament. What's the issue of worship and For those two readings. Okay? What's the relationship between law and mercy? What happens if you have one without the other? Some fundamental way. So um, last week, um, I'm offering you the timeline to show you how the the prophetic tradition lines up with the um, literary tradition, the, those works that I'm calling prophetic in some ways. And I just briefly 
to show you that every one of the epics um, lines up with the gospel, the Old Testament, particularly Genesis and Exodus, because every one of the epics has to do with the founding, the refounding of the people. And that's what brings the Old Testament into being. Moses called, I mean, God calls Abraham out, and then Moses and David and all the others to, to found this people that will eventually lead to Christ. This week I want to do three things. Desires. 
it's a simple explanation to make this as simple as I can. He makes clear how true this is by saying, I think it's the example that the people from UD may correct me or it's a bit of mine. Um, picture a man going um, thirsty and on the verge of dying. He's in the desert and he sees a water hole. He goes up to the water hole, he's dying of thirst, he wants water. He goes up and he's ready to drink and he sees a sign that says poison. What does he do? His appetites say what? Drink. The reason in him says, don't drink, you're going to die. So there's a tension of the soul between our rational faculties and our appetitive faculties, okay? And um, Plato distinguished between two kinds of appetitive faculties, what's, what the ancient world knew, knew as emos in, in Homer and Plato, which is anger and the appetites. The higher appetites have as their end all the noble transcendent goods, beauty, truth, honor. Okay? So there's a part of our soul, largely collected with our rational faculties, that loves the noble things, beauty, truth, right, honor, oneness, wholeness, all of those things. But there's also another appendant faculty that wants physical things, sex, food, drink, being become gluttonous, you know, wanting too much. Those faculties are all at war. Plato goes on to conclude that um, no man can become really just until he learns to order his own soul. So one of the premises of Plato's work in the Republic is to mind your own business. Yeah? How, no, seriously, how just can we be to another person when we haven't learned to order ourselves. How close is that to Christ? We've got to change our interior life before we can love or bring his love to the world. You know, we can make claims or assertions all we want. So Plato's one of his great theses in the Republic is to mind our own business. We've got to learn to order our own So Now stop, think about this for a second. He goes on to say, justice is giving another his due. That's what justice is. That now is the definition. Justice is giving another due, right? That's what justice is. How can we do that if there's something wrong with our own souls? I hope that's clear. You know, if, if we're tripping over things with respect to things, how can we do, how can we just do another person? So, um, so what Plato goes on to make clear is that any political regime um, that it doesn't base itself on the nature of the soul, it's out of tune with the soul, will be destructive. For a political regime to do its work, it's got to be in tune with the soul, the human soul. I, I mean, I, that's what you hear, I mean, it should be on it. How many regimes have any understanding of the nature of the human soul or the dignity that's inherent to it and shows it? Why are the people in these mass migrations all over the world because they're being treated so well? If a regime does not know the nature of the human soul, if it doesn't base itself on the nature of the human soul, it's going to be out of tune with it and it's going to be destructive of its own nature. It will bring about its own downfall. Um, now he said, too, is an illustration of the problem that man's facing is this. In the seventh book, 
In the seventh book, he gives what Uh, 
He's a precursor to Christ in some ways. Here's the bearing the relation of the relatives of this book do tonight. Plato said, because he had Homer very much on his mind, it's only the poet who goes outside of the cave, um, who can come back and show the eternal things in what he shows that's the good poet, the just poet. So one of the concerns that we've got in this work that we're going to do is, do these poets show us timeless, universal truths, truths that are always with us? My time's going to be out. But what we're learning tonight, when we were in the next couple of weeks on the Merchant Venice, we're going to learn things about our regime that are timeless. It's the, na it's the nature of the commercial regime. Shakespeare's going to show us what's wrong at the heart of our regime and the answer to it. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what we can think about. It's going to be a huge question tonight when we leave. So, um, that's the importance of the poet. It's only the poet who can render the things to our senses just exactly as we see them. Shakespeare, Faulkner, Dickens, Austin. But who also shows us the, the deeper meaning of things that we don't often see. So, the cave is a really important image for us. It will be an important perspective to keep in mind as we go forward. The second, the second, Sorry. So I think it's um, the second, the second notion I want to throw out you tonight is the notion of the city. Okay, because the city is going to be really important for all of our work. Why the city? You know, in our world, that most of us are encouraged to look at problems in our lives in terms of intergenerational relationships, father-son, mother-daughter. Um, most modern psychology works through that model. It's intergenerational, right? It's very Jewish, it's very Old Testament. Sons of the father, the sons of the mother. Um, my mother did this when I was young, my dad did this. It's a, it, it tends to focus on the most immediate problems for all of us. The paradigm of the ancient world was not intergenerational. It was the city. Now, why is that so? Stop and think about this just for a second. The city was a paradigm for all the great ancient poets, for Homer, for Shakespeare, Virgil, Dante, Shakespeare. Um, why is the city important? For this reason. When does the city come into existence? Our understanding from the Bible is that the city comes into existence just after Cain was exiled. Yeah? Cain killed Abel and his exile. He's sent away from God. God puts a mark on him to make it clear nobody, this is really interesting, he just kills somebody and God says, don't touch this man, don't kill him, you want to protect him. He doesn't execute him. Cain's first son is Enoch. Enoch is the founder of the first city. That's biblical. Go back to Genesis and read it, okay? Enoch's the founder, it's about a founding. Enoch's the founder of the first city. He brings the first city into existence. What are the implications of that for understanding our human nature? The city comes into existence when we attempt to live self-sufficiently without God. It comes into existence when we distance ourselves from it, as if, as if we can live on our own. It's brought into existence what we know today as the secular city. Look at the problem 
was in a secular city and they, trust me, we all know them, can't read the news today without being horrified by it. The city comes into existence in, in man's effort to be self-sufficient, to live without God. So the city has always, from the beginning of time, had a paradoxical quality. It's been one of the most extraordinary things that, we, that we've created. Take the, the twin skyscrapers, you know, the, um, the great buildings, all, all that we do, the, the city is this remarkable testimony to everything that's great about man. But it also conceals beneath it everything that's horrible, sinister problems everywhere. So underneath this great glory, this, these great accomplishments that we have, are these myriad sins, this attempt to live without God. So when you look at the city in, through, in the literary tradition, if you start with Homer, Troy, and the Iliad, um, the city's going to be destroyed. It's a place of wars, unending conflicts. They won't stop. In St. Augustine, there's this wonderful passage in the Confessions where he goes to Carthage, burning in lust. Eliot quotes him, Carthage I go, burning, burning, burning. Dante calls Florence the usurious city, the city where people make money off of other people. That's Dante. Eliot calls the city in his great We've got to learn with different, 
we've got to learn to deal with different problems according to the regime we're in. Do, are, are people who live in French, do they have the same ethos, the same sensibilities that we do as Americans? Absolutely not. People in Hong Kong, do they engage the world? Wherever you go, India, Hong Kong, China, doesn't matter. We all live in this cave. What, what Plato was saying is it's only when we, get, when we begin to question and come out of the cave that we can come back and learn to see things as they are. So the, the, the task facing the poet is, can he detach himself enough from his world to render it exactly as it is and still show the truths that it doesn't see? Is that clear? So when we read Merchant of Venice, we're going we're to be entering a world in which people act a certain way. They think they know things. My claim is Shakespeare's showing us that they don't really know what they think they do. And the question to come away, I mean the question to ask is we sit down and what is Shakespeare showing us about Venice? What is he showing us about ourselves? Okay? So these two perspectives, the cave and the sea, are going to be governing, they're going to be governing paradigms for our work. Keep them in mind because they'll help you. And Mary, I think this partly goes to your question, you know, um, Clockwise, 
What's the lyric about? The lyric um, is a form of poetry that generally speaking is spoken in the first person. The mother speaking about her, herself as a child, right? Hopkins speaking about the bird or the kingfishers. Um, the topos, the locale, the, lo the, lo the terrain of the lyric is the garden. The lyric is always an expression of wanting to return to the garden. And here's what's crucial, to find our original voice. Because in the lyric, remember this, in the lyric, the poem and, and the poet's voice are one. What's in the poem is the poet speaking. When I was four years old, this morning I saw a window, right? It's like God, it's the fiat. He calls something into being. He's one with his word, with his poem. Okay? In, in drama, um, we lose the garden. There's a fall and enter the world of tragedy. We lost the garden. The tragedy deals with a man isolated. He enters a darkness, becomes isolated on his own. He left to suffer. Achilles, Odysseus, Macbeth, dear Hamlet, he named it, doesn't matter. We'll see that more clearly when we get there. But we lost the garden. darkness, he has to deal with problems surrounding him everywhere. We move from, um, from tragedy and drama to comedy. Comedies, um, a, a, a world in which man begins to recover simple hope. He wants the, the, the whole nature of the three genres is to recover the garden, to go back and recover that wholeness we once had. So in comedy, um, we recover a sense of hope, belonging. Louis Cannon, who's my um, dissertation director, used to say, comedy was about waiting for the bus. You would run for the bus, you knew you had to make it, suddenly you would trip, and the bus would go on. So we're left enduring, hoping. Comedy's about endurance and hope. It's not just about laughing. And when we move from the two dramas into the epic or narrative, um, we move back into a battleground. All the ancient epics were about battles to recover a new order. That's what I mentioned just briefly last week. They're all about famines. Um, man finds himself beset by all these disorders, and um, they, they get caught in like the Iliad, where people are killing each other right and left. A man is called out, he's given a divinely appointed task, Achilles, Odysseus, Dante himself, and divine He's called out by the gods to do something. And what he does makes possible the reestablishment of a new identity among the people. And I hope you see the connection there with the Bible. So that's, that's Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, Virgil, Dante, you name um, Portia, in some ways, takes on that task here. Um, and they line up with Abraham, Moses, David, um, so, the genres give us three different ways of approaching the world in this struggle to, um, to recover the garden. So, it's always the impact. I'm going to read, sorry, say the name. Ginger. Ginger. Yes. Sorry for, uh, pardon me for, be patient with me for a while, I will learn your names, I really do want to, Ginger, yeah. 
wasteland. The mm -hmm. wasteland. This yep. is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. Right. This is the way the world ends. Good to good to Not a good thing. A river. So where does it fit? Sorry? Where does the wasteland fit in? Oh, well, that's your question. This is what happens when you had to memorize points. <laughs> What does it have to do with me with you or me? Oh, uh, everyone um, had to memorize um, because you can't get them out of your, your head yeah. because they're living. You know, they're, right, they're right. actually living and there's yeah. something else going on. Yeah. It's Ginger, right? Yes, Ginger's asking a really good question and one that's too hard for our purpose, but let me because I want to. I just said that she's asking, how does this fit up? Because it doesn't seem to fit the description I've given. Elliot's Wasteland is that landmark poem of the early part of the 20th century. It's really important. Because it doesn't fit into the, lyric, the ordinary traditional lyric as we know it. It does in proof rock. We're going to get to Elliot. I hope if we stay together, we're going to get to Elliot. And it does in the four quartets where Elliot recovers that third voice. But in the Wasteland, he's showing the modern world and it's broken into fragments, and all the fragments shows. The sterility, it's one of the themes, the sterility of the modern world. Spiritually, it's dead. The modern world is the modern wasteland. So she's asking, how does this fit in? Bless your soul. <laughs> Let me just leave it with this. Elliot knows that he's doing something new with the lyric. And the interesting thing about the wasteland is that he's taking a lyric mode and accommodating it to a narrative mode. And, and actually, and because the wasteland is dealing with not just London or you know, a modern city, it's dealing with um, a much faster problem, a world problem, and he knows it. So he's putting the modern wasteland in the context of something that's going on in the larger world, and he knows it. So the, sh the short answer to that is what he's doing is, is accommodating a, a, an epic vision to a lyric, uh, and it's one of the reasons it's such a it's it's such an important poem because he and James Joyce and a couple of people like, did things with art that nobody had done before. Elliot's one of them, James Joyce is the other. If you could just let it go at that, I'd be grateful because it's just a that's a much effort. That's um, a graduate school question. Um, okay, let's 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 look at. Um, Wait, I want, to, I want to read this before we leave this garden. Okay. This is what Louise, Louise Cowens says of the garden. Um, that the garden is the place, the misty site of origins. The misty site of origins. It's the thing we all long to return to, the misty site of origins. Um, Chesnav Milos, the Nobel Prize winner, says this about the garden. I want you to hold on to this. In our deepest, this is a Nobel Prize quote, one of the really important quotes of our time. In our deepest convictions, reaching into the very depths of our being, we deserve to live forever. We experience our transitoriness and mortality as an act of violence perpetuated against us. Only paradise is authentic. The world is inauthentic and only temporary. That's why the story of the fall speak to us so emotionally as if summoning an old truth from our slumbering
memory. All poetry, I'm going to claim, has an aspect of memory. memory. It has a longing to recover what we've lost. The beauty, the order, the truthfulness of poetry is an attempt to recover that wholeness, that condition. Paul, my claiming is not only just to overcome our mortality, to recover the world we lost, 
It's to recover our love with each other, to love and be loved and dwell with each other. How, 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 well, how well do we do that generally? Or let me put how often do we take, I'm speaking about marriages, um, how often do we take each other for granted? Or, or even more, how often do we use each other without knowing it? Virgin Venice is about that. That's what's going on in this world. How often? How often is what we're doing really for ourselves, even when we don't think we're doing it? So the longing of poetry, this prophetic quality that I'm talking about, is not only just to recover the garden, this overcome our mortality, it's to recover this absolute love that we once had with God, this complete union. What's marriage, this is kind of interesting, marriage is at the center of this play. What's at the heart of marriage? To help us recover that. Um, can it, here's me now, I'm getting personal. Can that happen without a cross? I don't believe so. I don't believe so. I don't believe anybody gets their 50th anniversary without a cross. No, sorry, I don't believe anybody gets their 50th anniversary without a cross. Okay. There's all my perspectives. <laughs> now we can finally turn to the book. Any questions before we, <laughs> for the how many of time to get back to the plan? Completely 
in yourself, or we wouldn't be having this conversation. Um, the, one of the claims that I was, or assumption behind the claim that I was making a minute ago is that, is that poetry is communal. Human beings are communal by nature. So the fact that you're here means we're already, we've already entered into a work together, and it's not just you or me, there's something larger. What I'm hoping to do here is show that Shakespeare's taking us into a much larger world. I want to look at this city because I think we, we learn more about ourselves by looking at this play, by seeing larger things that, and the, the influence they have on us as, as they relate to our gene and in this play as they relate to marriage, because it's at the center of this regime. Okay, let's quick. I want to do this quickly. Um, I'm going to try to go through this as quickly as I can, and then um, I was going to read from the place, but once again, trying to get these background perspectives. These background perspectives are really important, so pardon me for, you'll just be patient. And we'll, we'll, we'll spend more time in the plays themselves once we get through this. Business keeping us. So over and over and over again, we're getting into this 
this sense in the beginning that people are so preoccupied with business that they're losing their friendships. They don't have time for each other. And not only that, they mistreat each other. They don't even see what's in front of them. And you know what happens. Bassanio goes to Shylock, takes out the bond, and Antonio serves for it. And Shylock's condition is now the flesh. Okay, that's, that's sort of roughly where we were before. Um, go, go quickly to Act, act One. Um, Act 1, Scene 3. I just want to recover these words. You remember when Shylock and, and Antonio are um, speaking to each other, they both look at each other in contempt. They hold each other in contempt, Christian and Jew. And um, Shylock gives the, the, quotes the passage from the Bible um, where Jacob uses that maneuver to facilitate the breathing in his favor. And Antonio's response is, um, this was um, something um, that God was responsible not for you. And Jacob claims that he's responsible. It was his cunning and his resourcefulness that produced this effect. His words are this. Antonio says, this was a venture, sir, that Jacob served for, a thing not in his power to bring the path. Jacob didn't do this on his own. God was lying. What's going on? Two radically different ways of reading the world. Once again, was this inserted to make interest good? Are you saying this to justify yourself? Or is your gold and silver used in rams? Shiloh, I cannot tell. I make it breathe as fast. Um, but note me, senor. Sorry. Um, I make it breathe as fast. Antonio interrupts us and, and Son, watch the devil do his work. He's quoting from pastors, or, um, um, scripture. He's using scripture for his own purposes. Go down a few lines about line 130. Um, they're still sparring with each other, and Antonio says, I'd like to call me so again, to spit on me again, to spurn me too, if thou wilt lend the money, lend it. Not as to thy friend. For when did friendship take a breed for barren metal of his friend? When did any friend give another friend money on interest? Because remember, interest is making money greed. When a friend gives a friend money, he gives it freely. The difference between Shylock, and we've seen this over and over again, Antonio gives money freely. He doesn't borrow. So he's actually jeopardizing Shylock's work. Shylock hates him because he's taking away business. So two very different ways are in conflict here in the commercial regime. But the principle is, there's, if, we, if we watch, we go further, there is no breeding going on in Venice. Nobody's having children. Child, child's daughters are going to run from her. Yeah. What's breeding is money. People make money breed. So here, once again, at the opening is one of the characteristics of the commercial regime. It breeds money. It wants to make money. That's its end. And the effect of that is hurting human relationships. We see, it's, it's one of the first things we see when we start to play. Um, going over to um, Act 2, Scene 2, quickly. Portia has just greeted Morocco. She makes it clear, you remember, that um, Portia has to follow her father's will. 
father says that she has to marry whoever chooses the right casket. So all these men are visiting Portia to undergo this ordeal. Come back to why ordeal? So she greets Morocco. It's amazing to watch her. She has no choice in the marriage. She's got to marry whoever chooses the right casket. She's absolutely gracious in the way that she receives these men. Any women would do that easily today. She's absolutely gracious. And she says to each one when they go through their ordeal, she's absolutely gracious. If you choose the right one, I'm yours. Study. I'll, I'll ask you what you think of her later, but that's what Porsche is doing right now. In Act 2, Scene 2, she's just greeted Morocco, and we get this funny scene between Lancelot and his father. Let me read it quickly. Certainly my conscience will serve me to run from my Jew the master. Oh, act two beginning. Act two scene two. Act two scene two. Opening. The fiend is at my elbow and tempts me saying, Go, go, Lancelot, go, go, good Lancelot, or good go, or good Lancelot, go, go. This is a common scene. Use your legs, take start, run away. My conscience says, No, take heed on this Lancelot. Take heed on this go, go, as foresaid. On this Lancelot, go, go, do not run. Squirm running with my heels. Well, the most courageous fiend bids me pack. The fiend says, run, get away from this guy, get away from Shadow as quickly as you can. Run. Well, my conscience hanging out the neck of my heart says very wisely, my honest friend Lancelot being an honest man's son, or rather an honest woman's son, for indeed, this is so good. He can't get a hold of his words. He had a kind of taste. Well, my conscience says, Lancelot budge run. Why is this scene here? Sorry? Did you? What's your name? Heather. So, Heather? Go. It's foreshadowing that Portia's leaving at her father, in a way. Portia's Jessica's or Portia? When, when, uh, it foreshadows. Because he's talking about should I leave or should I go? Right. Should I leave or should I stay? You're talking about Jessica or Portia? Jessica. Jessica. Jessica's okay, you're right. Yeah. Is this because I think 
Have any of you ever been in a situation where, I think Mary's right on, and I hope I'm not, hope I'm doing justice here, where you're facing what appears to be a dilemma, and you see it in terms of good, but no matter what you do, somebody's going to be upset with you. You're even going to be upset with yourself because you may do the wrong thing. Let me give you, let me give you a, an example of literature, and then I'm going to give you a real example to make this clear. If, if any of you have read Huckleberry Finn, you know that um, Huck reaches a point when they're downriver, and he reaches a point where he knows that he's stolen Jim. He's a black slave, and it's anti-slavery in that sense. He's, he's, stolen, he's stolen a slave, and he knows he's done wrong. So the moral code of that time, the respectable code is, Jim's a slave, and he's stolen him. So the right thing to do is what? Go back and give it to his owner. The wrong thing to do, which is his conscience or part of his is set him free. What's his choice? He says, I choose to set him free and go to hell. Because he knows to go against that moral code because it's religious, is to risk damnation. Now what does he do? Lancelot Lowe was facing the same thing. He's in a dilemma because he's a, he's uncertain Shylock, and there's this adage that all of us carry, we keep our loyalties. We remain faithful to those we serve, right? But part of him is saying, get away from this guy's as you can. And the other part is saying, you know, stay where you are. Where does he go? Let me give you a, a person being closer. Um, somebody was invited to a shower. The couple wasn't married. Somebody decided not to go because they looked at it as a scandal. What do you do? If you don't go to the shower, the people are not going to like you. They think you don't like the family. I'm assuming all of us, or most of us, have been in situations like that where you're in a dilemma, your conscience says not to do something, and yet you know if you do that, it's going to be the wrong thing to do. You have to do the other. Here's the dilemma. The dilemma that lots of us face is, do we live by social conventions when our conscience is saying, no, we can't do that? So the people who live by social conventions are going to condemn us, which doing is wrong, when our conscience calls us to something else. Let's say particularly with Christ. We look at Christ's story. He, he didn't follow the conventions and he's crucified. Socrates didn't follow the conventions. He's killed. So I think there's two things going on here with Lancelot. One is we see families don't know each other. Father, the father doesn't know his son. And the other is that he's an illustration of something else going on in the commercial regime. That people live according to ideas of respectability, conventional ideas of morality, but there come times when we'll be facing situations where if we go along to doing that, we know we're violating something deeper that the social conventions don't cover. Is that clear? Yes, sir. Is it? Yes. Is it? Yes. Okay, good. So here's another aspect of the commercial regime. What we're watching are um, traditional values eroding. You don't know what your conscience is anymore because the, so the pressure of the social conventions are lying on you. This is what you should do. When there's something, how do you make a decision in a situation like that? 
That's what he shows. Okay. Now, quickly, um, I want to go through the. Um, you know that these visitors are coming to Porsche. I, I want to end with those. I want you to take a close look. But you know that news comes that Antonio's ships um, have gone astray, and Jessica has eloped with Lorenzo. Um, is that right? Um, and when Shiloh gets the news, he is outraged. His daughter took all his jewels and more, hold on to this, she took Shylock's and his wife's ring and sold it. Now hold on to that because rings and marriage rings are crucial. The women at the end of this play are going to crucify the men, <laughs> rightfully, rightfully, because of, because of it, I, we have to wait on that, but they're going to crucify the men because of what they do in the ring. So rings are an important image of marriage and the house. Okay? When Shylock finds out he's outraged, absolutely livid, um, he wants his daughter dead, um, um, and, and he gets irate at um, Antonio, and he hopes misfortune on him. He's so angry that he wants the ships to crash. That is, he wants his down flesh. He's so outraged right now. So the play is moving towards this climax in the courtroom when Shylock and Antonio are going to have to deal with this question of the law. So the center of the play. We're going to have to wait until next week, but before we leave, I want to look at those three ideas because these go to marriage as, as quickly as we can. Turn to the first one. Act two, scene seven, at the very beginning. Act two, scene seven. Portia greets Margo says, make a choice. He has to choose between three caskets, right? Who chooses me, this is the gold one, shall gain what many would desire. The second silver. Who chooses me shall get as much as he deserves. Third lead. Who chooses me must give and hazard all he hath. How shall I choose? Here's Margo. Some God direct my judgment, so he's a religious man, apparently. I will, I will survey the inscription. Who chooses me must give and hazard all hand. Must give for what? For lead, hazard for lead? This casket threatens men that hazard all do it hope of fair advantages. A golden mind stoops not the shows of dross. Go down. Who chooses me shall get as much as he deserves. As much as he deserves? Pause there, Morocco. And wait, I value. He said, um, he thinks about it. And he says, and yet to be afraid of my deserving were but a weak disabling of myself. If I descend to that, I need to be getting into a weakness in myself. I hope you can all hear the pride in this man. Let's see once more the same great and gold. Who chooseth me shall get what many men desire. Why, that's the lady. The whole world desires her. The watery kingdom whose ambitious head spits in the face of heaven is no bar. What a beautiful thing. He's talking about all the men who are crossing the sea to come to Portia who spit at heaven. I hope we're all here the, the superbia. Hubris, the excessive pride in just the image. Because I think it says something about him. Um, he said, For damnation to make such a thought, it were too gross to grow her seraphim and to um, aim his basis lead. So he chooses gold. So he says, um, I choose gold for the reasons he's given. Um, all men want her. Um, I'm going to choose her for that reason. 
They are taken, Prince, and if my form lies there, then I am yours. Think about that for a woman to say that. This is Morocco. She want to marry this guy? But she's saying, if you choose right, and I want everybody to give some real thought to obedience and the, the importance of this in the play, what it means. Morocco, oh hell, what have we here? A carrion death within whose empty eye there is a written scroll. I'll read the writing. All that blisters is not gold, often have you heard that told. Many a man his life has sold, but my outside to behold. Gilded tombs do worms enfold. Had you been as wise as gold, young limbs in judgment old, your answer had not been scrolled. Fare you well, your suit is cold. It's, a, it's an exopathic. Okay? Remember, there's three conditions. If, if any man gets this incorrectly, um, he can't let anybody else know what he chose. He can never marry, and he has to leave right away. So he's gone. Porsche's not sad. Going over Aragon, um, at you see nine, Aragon comes and she says, choose. So he looks at the same three caskets. Porsche says about line 15, to these injunctions everyone does swear that comes to hazard for my worth itself. Everyone has to follow those three conditions. You don't let anybody know. You cannot marry if you fail. Think, here, be clear on this. This is an ordeal for everyone. It's an ordeal for the men. If they choose wrongly, they can't marry. It's an ordeal for Portia. She, she wants a choice. She's, she's going to abide by her father's will. So it's an ordeal, truly, for everybody. He goes through the three, and then he says, the gold, silver, and I will not choose what many men desire, because I will not jump with common spirits and rank me with the barbarous multitudes. When empty be thou silver treasure house, tell me once more what title thou dost bear. Then he goes through the three again. Let none presume to wear an undeserved dignity, but that estates, degrees, and offices were not underived corruptly, that clear honor were purchased by the merit. If only everything that happened were by, this, by merit, the world would be a much better place. Because of course he thinks of himself as being a really good man. He, he deserves everything. If the world were run on merit, there'd be less corruption, there'd be less problems in the world. How much low peasantry would then be gleaned from the true sea of honor? The lowly people, weed them out. How much honor picked from, from the chaff and root of the times to be False honor, get rid of it. Well, but to my choice, who chooses me shall get as much as he deserves. I will soon deserve giving me the key. Why, what's there? The portrait of a blinking idiot. So he reads it. So, dead dead from Morocco, now a blinking idiot. What's here? The fire seven times trying this, seven times trying that judgment is, that did never choose a miss. Some there be that shadows kiss. Remember the Plato's cave and the shadows of the images. Such have but a shadow's bliss, there be fools alive, you wis, sir, or, and so is this. Take what wife you will to bed, I will ever be your head, so be gone, your spit. He's gone. Now go over and let's finish this. Look at um, Act 3, Scene 2. The science come with, you know, with Antonio's help. This is the beginning of 3 2. This is Portia now. She's, she's, she's earlier in, in, uh, in the opening playroom when she was with the nurse, she was going through all the men Germany, Italy, England. She, she had nothing good to say about England. Remember, Shakespeare's an English poet. 
And so she's seen all these men, and we've seen Morocco now be our governor. Now here's the son. I pray you, Terry, pause a day or two before you answer. For in choosing wrong, I lose your company. Therefore, forbear a while. If something tells me, but it is not love, I would not lose you. And you know yourself, it counsels not in such a quality, but lest you should not understand me well, and yet a maiden have no tongue but thought, I would detain you here some month or two. Away. I don't lose you. I wish you could stay because she knows it's an ordeal. She's risking losing him. He's the only man so far she's interested in. I could teach you how to choose right. I'm sure she would. I mean, she would make a better man. And the, the chances of his making the right decision would be increased. But she can't. But then I'm forsworn, so will I never be. She will not go against her vow to her dad. So may you miss me, but if you do, you make me wish a sin that I had been forsworn. She would actually want to go against, but she won't. So she expresses her affection for him that she doesn't want him to lose, but he has to go. Now here's um, about line 40. Portion of the way then, I am locked in one of them. If you do love me, you will find me out. Larissa and the rest and all aloof, let music sound. Now, this is the first time in the three ordeals that she's put music on, okay? Now, while he's choosing, here's the music. Now, two years and because I'm going to stop here for a question. Here's the music. So he's looking. She's calling for sacrifice. She wishes with everything in her that he has the strength to make the sacrifice that she gives a quote from Hercules and his heroic efforts. And then this music plays in the background. Tell me where is fancy bread, or in the heart, or in the head? How the God how nourish it? Reply, reply, it is engendered in the eyes, with gazing fed and fancy eyes in the cradle where it lies. Let us all ring fancies now, all begin it. Ding dong bell, ding dong bell. In your response to that music, you know that's a it's not a trick question, but it's a loaded question. Let's open, give it a body, give it a body. Tell me where is fancy bread, or in the heart, or in the head? How would God have nourished it? Reply, reply. What's the significance of those three lines? Sorry, three lines. They rhyme with lead. What? Okay, is she told the answer? No. No, she's being an immediate daughter. Whatever, I mean, go on. It is engendered in the eyes, when gazing fed and fancy dies in the cradle where it lies. Let us all ring fancy's knell, all begin at ding dong bell. What's, this, what's the meaning of those words? Say What's your name? Sorry? What was the basis on which Aragon made his, Morocco, sorry, Morocco made his decision? Portia's, yeah, Portia's inner life or her outward appearance? That is fancy or good sense, if I can put the contrast that way. Fancy, right? What's, what's the song saying? 
Forget fancy. Put, let's bring the death knell on fancy. Don't let fancy guide you. Because what happens if, you, if you're guided by your external events? Famous cave, the shadows, the images on the wall. Is she getting the answer? No. But she's helping. Think about portions of wisdom here just for a second, okay? Because to me, she's an extraordinary person. So she plays this song, and you know what happens. Um, Bassanio goes through. So on his own, he's thinking through each of the each of the caskets, and then he chooses the lead. And remember the difference. He who answers all he has, he who risks everything, not for gold, not for appearances, not for merit, not what you think you deserve, um, but for your willingness to risk everything for the person you say you love. And he makes that choice. Portia, all the other passions feed to air as doubtful thoughts and rational grace despair. Shuddering fear and greed-eyed jealousy, O lovely moderate, allay thy ecstasy. In measure will reign thy joy, scant this excess. I feel too much thy blessing, make it less, for I fear servant. He opens it, you know, and, and, and he sees that it's her image. So they're contracted up marriage. Now let me stop for a second, because we've got to, we've got to stop here.
I give them with this ring, and listen to this, I give them with this ring, which when you part from, lose or give away, let it press you to the ruin of your love and be my vantage to exclaim on you, to give them the ring. Those of you who have not read it yet, and I don't want to give this away because I hate giving things away, they married, the son of Mary's, Graziano marries Marissa. They give their rings, and promptly he bows. Don't ever give these rings up. I can't tell you what happens. Something happens with the rings. <laughs> and, and at the end, at the end, the women, when she said, and be my man, the women are going to crucify the men. These good, these good Christian men, the women are going to take them apart. But here's my question at the end, and I'd like, I'd like to take just a few minutes, even a little late. Um, what do we learn about marriage? I'm really serious about this. What do we learn about marriage from this ordeal? What kind of a husband would Morocco have been? What kind of a husband would Aragon have been? I'm really serious about this. Either the father was a stupid man to do what he did, or if there's some wisdom, we've got to deal with this. What kind of a husband would Morocco have been? He chose gold. Let's work this out for a second. Did Joan? He might have been great while she was young and pretty. Rather than lousy, it's my age. Good. Anything else? How do you treat her? Truly. Sorry? Possession. Like an object. Like an object. Why? Because that's how he viewed yeah. her and everything around her. Isn't that true? He, he would have treated her as an object for her beauty, I think.
recorder, some recording portion. How she, what kind of a husband he Selfless. So, what's your name? Chuck. Chuck? Go ahead. Selfless. Can you elaborate? Go ahead. Oh, self sacrifice. Sorry? Self sacrifice. Yeah. Expecting nothing of her. Yeah. Describe it in some of his activities with her. I mean, what, how would that play out? If, if Morocco would use her and, um, and for, uh, for Aragon, she could never live up. How would things play out between the sun and the uh, worship? I would think it'd be an excellent example of service to one another because, and she gives voice to that too when she says that she was great, she could never be good enough. Yeah, yeah. What kind of a wife will worship be? Everything 
But his risking put Antonio's life at risk. In the next scene, in the next act, we're going to go to the courtroom scene in Venice. Shylock's going to call in his bond because um, Antonio failed to make good on it in the time allowed. So the contract is violated. Um, Antonio thought he was careful enough that he had his investments spread out so there was no danger, but he loses. Shylock is so furious that his daughter is running for the Christian, he wants vengeance. So it's not just getting his bond. There's an element of iron. He's, he really wants him dead. When they come to court, Shiloh says, I want my bond. The Christians say, show mercy. Now what happens if either of those sides is right? We know that Shylock wants Antonio dead because if he's dead, he will profit because he'll, he'll get a competitor around. He says that clearly. If Antonio's dead, my claim is Venice is dead. Because who will risk if the law is so severe that you're going to suffer that penalty? So it's a disincentive to invest. So if Shylock wins, it's going to harm Venice. If the Christians win, let him go. Show mercy. So the bond is invalidated. Who's going to enter into a contract? If the laws aren't upheld, who will risk it? Is everybody following? Either way, Venice goes. All that's good in the commercial regime to encourage people to be resourceful and win their own freedom, it's gone. So either one of those extremes is going to cost Venice its life. So what happens in that courtroom scene? What does Portia do to reconcile law and mercy? Because either one, mercy by itself, law by itself, is cruel. It is harmful. Either one by itself. What does she do? Why is it a woman? I hope that doesn't sound spiritual. It's really, it's really important to me. It's a woman who comes in to do it. Why is it no lawyers for Venice? Why is it somebody from outside Venice? So, what does Portia do? Why a woman? And one of the things we learn about Venice, going back to the list that we were making earlier, there are no fathers. The authority of the father, the authority of the father is gone in Venice. It's the father's authority that holds Bethlehem portion to her bond, you know, in, in the ordeals. But the father's gone. What's the significance of all of this? What does Portia do to reconcile this to why a woman? What happens to the father? Why, why is he gone in Venice? And the last thing is, when the, when the trial is over and everything's done, they all go back to Belmont. Belmont. Beautiful mountain. Where they're happy. Where there are marriages. Where there will be breeding. Where there is love. Where is Belmont? How do you get there? That's where we're going next week. Enjoy your reading. It's a really, it's a really great play.